the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Right now, there's a situation brewing in the men's basic department. Men are being held hostage by overpriced brands that simply aren't mission-tested. That's why we're excited to tell you about Undertack, the only brand that's literally been battle-tested by special forces. These have to be the greatest boxers ever made because they cover all the bases. High-quality material that's antibacterial, anti-pilling, and moisture-wicking so you stay fresh and dry all day. Uh, I recently did a 30-mile run in preparation for an ultramarathon in a couple weeks wearing the Recon boxers, and they were absolutely incredible. I loved them. They have a quick-release fly and a secret pocket in the extra-wide waistband for cash or tactical necessities. Undertack is durable, ultralight, fade-resistant, and shrink-resistant. And here's the best part, they're almost 30% less than the competition. Go to getundertack.com. That's getundertack.com right now. Save 20% off your order with the offer code SITREP20. All one word, SITREP20. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. That is a great American company that's unapologetically pro-America, pro-Second Amendment, and pro-military. That's getundertack.com. GetUndertack.com, offer code SITREP20. Hello and welcome to the Situation Report. Very glad to have you with me today. This is the show where we do our best every single episode to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stonlecker and I am your host today. Looking forward to an incredible conversation about a topic we sometimes care about and then we allow to drift into the background uh, then we'll care about it again later on when something happens. But this is a topic, an issue, a concern that never goes away. It's interesting because we're living through this weird period of history where there is so much to worry about. Uh, locally, there's a lot that we should be concerned about. Globally, there are so many things happening. It's very difficult to focus. We look over here and then we look over there. But there are always things going on here in the United States. And we'll call that local on a global platform things that we need to be concerned about and that we need to understand. And our guest today brings one of these issues, a very, very important one, to the fore. And we're going to talk about that with uh, our guest and friend, John Gondolo. John is the president and founder of Understanding the Threat, the only organization in America providing tools to leaders, police, and citizens to identify and dismantle jihadi terrorist networks in their local communities. Uh, I'm very excited about this conversation. Currently, Mr. Guandolo advises governments on matters related to national security, specifically the threat from the global Islamic movement. He is an author of a number of books, The Threat to America, 
raising a jihadi generation, Islam's deception, all can be found on either understandingthethreat.com or Amazon. And probably most importantly, the biggest thing that John has done, he served as a United States Marine. And <laughs> to me, to me, that's the most important thing. The rest is also pretty good. I'm glad you did the other things too. But uh, thank, thank you for your service. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming on for a few minutes today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I appreciate it and Semper Fi. Yes, sir. Um, let's, let's start with your background. Uh, I shot out, here are some of the highlights of your bio, but uh, you have a, a very interesting background, at least interesting to me. Uh, sir, you attended the Naval Academy, served in the Marine Corps, of course. You've done a lot of different things. Uh, talk about your, your story a little bit. First of all, why is it that you went into the military? I always find that fascinating. And then what was your journey to doing what you're doing right now? Well, that's, uh, that is a, it's an interesting story and it could be long, but I'll try to be succinct for the purposes. <laughs> Take as of long my, as you need. For, for your audience. Um, first of all, why join the military? So it began with um, joining, uh, going to the Naval Academy. And uh, I was a high school wrestler and I attended um, the Naval Academy wrestling program camp uh, mm -hmm. run by Ed Perry, who was the coach for a long time at Navy yeah. and a, a multiple na you know, national champion wrestler, right. a great human being. Uh, I love the guy and um, went and uh, went to a wrestling camp there and fell in love with the, uh, the academy, with the Naval Academy. And um, so I, uh, I applied and I, uh, living in Maryland, it's very, was at least at that time, very competitive in Maryland. And so I did not get in. And so mm. I applied for a scholarship and got it and went to a year. Uh, the Naval Academy Foundation has about 50 schools around the country and they offer scholarships to these schools. And I did that for a year and then went to the Naval Academy. Wow. And I, um, did not, you know, I initially thought I wanted to, uh, to fly for the Navy. Um, that definitely intrigued me, but I would say within two or three weeks of being at the Academy during plebe summer, uh, the Marines that were there enlisted an officer that were training us, the upper class that I knew were going Marine Corps, right. both the juniors and seniors, uh, those were my people. And I, um, in all ways, related uh, to who they were, what they stood for, what they wanted right. to do. And it was a very, I mean, it was an immediate, I recognized that. And from then on, I was going Marine Corps. Yeah. So that's, that's the how I came into that. Um, the journey to doing what I'm doing now is, uh, is actually not that... Uh, complicated, but it, it is fascinating because doing this is not, you know, I honestly never thought I'd get out of the Marine Corps. Right. And um, I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, obviously, I got commissioned in uh, 1989. I was uh, an infantry officer. I went through the basic school. And then, of course, you get your service selection there. And uh, I was one of eight guys uh, from the Naval Academy that was allowed by the Commandant to actually go through U.S. Army Ranger School before TBS. Oh, interesting. And interesting. Uh, it was a special program that only lasted two years, four guys from my class and the class before me. And uh, 
The screening process was pretty severe. Um, and I, I mean, I consider it a blessing because it's the kind of thing as a young Marine officer to go through. Number one, yeah. uh, the ranger instructors knew you would have to be dead for you not to complete the course. <laughs> right, um, right. And they knew it. And so uh, that, that's a whole other story, but it was fascinating. And it actually gave me a very healthy respect for the U.S. Army because the, uh, the uh, ranger instructors were some of the most professional men mm. I've ever known. Right. And right. Uh, they were great. And it was a great preparation for me, uh, both from the leadership perspective and anything else. So I go to my infantry unit. Um, you know, you go from TBS to infantry officer course right. into the infantry unit. And while we were actually in infantry officer course, uh, we got we were out in the field on a pretty lengthy exercise, uh, patrol exercise. And we got the word that, you know, Iraq had invaded Kuwait. Mm. And all the infantry instructors said flat out, they're like, we're all going to war. Right. And right. Uh, at our graduation breakfast, uh, the general spoke in that infantry officer course it's the uh, it's the marine officers and, and fathers and um they said you know you you will be the chance of you if you're mm -hmm. in the infantry you will be activated for this yeah um and so i arrived um at my uh unit in second battalion second marines and the unit was already in preparation for deploying um they had a general assignment at that point and uh uh we deployed after Thanksgiving, so I did get to spend Thanksgiving with my family. Uh, deployed, and uh, we did Christmas and New Year's in, uh, yeah. in Saudi Arabia, and then of course, uh, after combat started, um, we we did that. I got back. I'll try not to go to too much detail, but I thought that was a as a, your 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 question is bringing yeah. up a lot, and I'm, uh, I'll try to be succinct here. But yeah. so I, I'll interrupt you real quick. I, just hearing you talk about that is crazy. You know, I don't think about a lot of these things that have happened in the past. But hearing you talk about TBS and then IOC, um, I spent like one of the worst years of my life in Quantico, which included, you know, OCS, TBS, and IOC. But, man, I, 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 you talk about the breakfast and all these things. Man, I, I'm having thoughts of, you know, all of that and what, a, what an experience that is just to go through that. What was it like going to IOC having already been to Ranger School? I, I can't imagine that was... Um, a warm reception. Maybe it, maybe it was. Well, it's inf uh, interesting. Um, so I was in uh, a very good physical fitness at the time, uh, the screening process for going to ranger school. And actually, because we were Marine officers, we actually went through three weeks of pre-ranger, which wow. was yeah. uh, rugged physically. Um, sure. But they also, it was good. Um because they really went over the five paragraph order. We did a lot of patrol operations, yeah. a lot of things like yeah. that, that helped us at ranger school. Um, but it, you went into ranger school already a little beaten up, uh, which is not how yeah. you want to go into ranger school for people not familiar <laughs> with U.S. Army ranger school. Right, right. Uh, and at that time, we had four phases. They went back to three phases. Um but it was brutal. And, uh, I mean, I lost about, uh, 35 pounds when I was at Ranger School. Night. So we came out yeah. exhausted, uh, weaker, but, uh, motivated. And yeah. when I did my, you know, they do the initial, as you know, at TBS, your initial PFT, yeah. your physical fitness test. 
And that was brutal. I mean, I was about a 1733 yeah. miler. And uh, I think me and my buddy finished somewhere under 24 minutes. But it was, it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. Right, right. And uh, um, so it, uh, it was really the beginning of TBS. It took uh, a number of weeks to build strength yeah, back. And, um, and I will say, tell this one story that I think you'll appreciate. The commandant at the time was Al Gray. And Gen- General oh, yeah. Gray, uh, I love the yeah. guy. And uh, we, so imagine, uh, commissioned in May. Now this is the Marine Corps birthday, only uh, you know several months later in uh, right. 1989, Ranger School graduate. And me and one of the guys who was my Ranger buddy, one of the four class of 89 Naval Academy midshipmen who went through that, uh, and he had actually been with me most of that time. The other two were in other uh, classes. And we are at the FBI Marine Corps birthday celebration at 8th and I. And uh, we're standing in the the lot in the foyer and in walks General Gray. And he walks, you know, because he goes to the young Marines first. He walks right up to us, shook our hands, punched us and said, you know, what are you doing, (laughs) Marines? And, uh, you know, we, we... we said, hey, sir, we want to thank you for giving us the opportunity. We are two of the four Marines you let go to Ranger School. And, uh, yeah. you know, we, we did very well. And it was successful completion. And he looked us right in the eye and he said, that's a good thing, because if you had dropped out, I would have punted you out of the Marine Corps. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, he, there was no opportunity for failure. Yeah, he used a little more colorful language. but uh, Sure, of course. Um, anyway, uh yeah, what a crazy time. It, it was. It was it was excellent. So fast forward, um, after uh we come back from the desert, uh from uh Kuwait and uh, Saudi Arabia, um I took the uh I had done the best I could over there to maintain physical fitness. It's a little hard, uh, but I came back and I actually sure. took the indoc for uh second force recon and uh and I mm. passed. And so I spent um about uh four and a half years there. And it was during that time, uh, I deployed, uh, we deployed, uh, uh, you know, I deployed with two, six mu. We went to Bosnia. We, uh, did a number of other things. And, uh, I was the airborne diving officer in the company in the, in the ops office. And my last part, I actually spent a year as the uh, unit leader for the SIFS platoon working directly for the uh, combatant commander in uh, Southcom which was a great experience um, uh, because you're on six hour recall. Um, right. It's a, right. it's a tier two mission. It was excellent. And uh, so many stories there, but uh, our, sure. our air assets were actually uh, the support was from the air force. And uh, the first time my, uh, my unit got on the uh, air force MH 53s, we thought we were on a spaceship. Because uh, it wasn't like the Marine Corps 53s with right. hydraulic fluid and all that. But anyway, um, that was a great experience. But I did feel actually called, and I'll use that word intentionally. I felt called out of the Marine Corps. I honestly thought I would die with my dress blues on. I love yep. the Marine Corps. Um, I, I, I tell people, give me four Lance Corporals and I can take over the world. Um, mm, yeah. And um, my experiences in the Marine Corps were, were very positive. 
Uh, I got a lot of great opportunities, uh, and I got a lot of fantastic uh, training and uh, operations. Uh, but uh, I did feel call into government service, and when I looked at it and I, I consulted with people that I respected, uh, really the only two places I thought uh, were good landing spots for me were the Secret Service and the FBI. And um, after some decision, I, I went into the FBI. And um, mm -hmm. so let me fast forward. You know, I did a number of years with, in the narcotics unit. We did international and national uh, level narcotics investigations with other agencies, and that was fantastic. But after 9-11, I got my supervisor uh, got chosen to be one of the two supervisors in the Washington field office to stand up two new units. Uh, and uh, he was tapped with that, and he got to handpick his squad. And so he asked me if I would go. Um, at that time, I had a lot of uh, a pretty fair amount of uh, significant investigative experience. I'd been on the SWAT team. Uh, I was a, actually a paramedic at the time. So wow. I had a lot, of, wow. a lot of tools in my toolkit that yep. were appreciated. And um, uh, so I, I moved over there with them, and it was awesome. It was gloves off, uh, going after the bad guys. And a couple of the investigations we were working uh, were, were significant, and one of them uh, got classified, and I was one of the two co-case agents uh, as a, what the FBI calls a major case. And a major case investigation, just to give you some understanding uh, yep. our major case was designated major case 189 so in the history of the fbi there there were at that point wow. only 189 major cases right. and it was right. a significant uh, national security and terrorism matter a counterintelligence matter and um it was what it did and i'll, I'll i can i can share with you this part of it was that it was an investigation into the penetration um of, uh, of the DOD um, by jihadis. Specifically, the leader of the group was a guy named Captain James Yee, who was a, a West Point grad, had served in the Army, got out of the Army, got trained as an imam, went back into the Army, and got certified wow. as a Muslim chaplain. Uh, but he was the leader of this group of uniformed and non-uniformed um, translators, linguists, uh, who were going to Guantanamo Bay and uh, both getting information and giving information to the uh, prisoners, but also doing things like mistranslating interrogations, the benefit yep. of the bad guys. Uh, so it was really a counterintelligence investigation. But in the process of that, I asked a couple basic questions of myself, like how does a guy get certified as a Muslim chaplain in the, in the Army, Marine Corps, whatever, Navy, uh, yep. Air Force? And, and what I found was the two certifying organizations for the Department of Defense, uh, and by the way, by the Bureau, to the Bureau of Prisons, uh, were Muslim Brotherhood organizations. And so um, I said, well, I need to know more about this Muslim Brotherhood organization. And to cut to the chase, what I realized was the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, their objective is the exact same as Al-Qaeda and then what, you know, as things developed, what became ISIS. But at the time, Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood have the exact same 
mission statement, which is to uh, establish a global Islamic state under uh, Allah's divine law, Sharia. And uh, all Sharia, all authoritatively published Sharia, requires non-Muslims to either submit to Islamic law and pay a non-Muslim poll tax, convert to Islam, or be killed. And um, that's a matter of fact. So as I looked at this, what we discovered through the investigation is that all of the prominent Islamic organizations uh, were involved in um, investigations that the FBI and other agencies had opened uh, on, you know, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and other terrorist groups. And at first, uh, it was it was a little hard pill to swallow, but as we started yeah. unpacking it, it was very clear. And here's the problem. The leaders of these organizations, and let's just say the top 10, uh, were exclusively the only people advising U.S. government officials at the State Department, Treasury, National Security Staffs, the White House, Congress, uh, et al., uh, DOD, on matters related to counterterrorism strategy domestically and foreign policy and warfighting strategy, which is catastrophic. And that would explain why, uh, despite the fact our military crushed the enemy on the battlefields of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, we lost the wars there because the people mm-hmm. advising us are the bad guys. So imagine yeah. during World War II, we had, uh, I don't know, Hitler and Himmler and uh, others advising right. uh, Roosevelt and the DOD on how to f- defeat the Nazis. I mean, it's asinine. And uh, we got yeah. what we deserved, which is defeat. Uh, we, not the American people and not the military, uh, but our leaders did this. Um, and um, so that's how I got on this path. And me being, you just heard a little bit about who I am. Yeah. Um, when I realized this was going on and this was the issue, um, I started talking to other agents around the country and asking them questions like, why are you closing these cases on these specific individuals? Mm. Yep. And what we found was the, what I found was the answer was always the same. And that is that the boss of the office uh, around the country um, was having lunch with the leader of this uh, hostile jihadi organization. And uh, while I, try to explain to the case agents that uh, that's not a, a professional nor a, a, the per FBI policy. Uh, quite frankly, neither legally uh, right. why and how we open and close cases. Uh, they all seem to know that. Um, but that was what the boss said, and that's what happened. Uh, and, uh, of course, needless to say, my boss, uh, the head of the Washington field office, uh, would receive calls from leaders of other offices around the country asking uh, who in the heck uh, John Guandolo is and why he's telling case agents that open up cases or not close cases right. <laughs> against their wishes. Um, but I would point out that, well, you're dealing with, uh, you know, the uh, the Osama bin Laden of your local area because uh, uh, just because he's in a yeah. suit and tells yeah. you he's a good guy, uh, that's not actually how we do things in the FBI. But that wasn't well received by special agents in charge of uh, Washington, of uh, FBI field offices. Sure. So um, what I started to do was do one-day trainings. And uh, with the permission of our leadership, would fly agents 
and analysts and sometimes attorneys, uh, FBI attorneys from other offices into the Washington field office and start walking them through what was actually happening. That the way they were doing what they were doing is they would wear suits and they would present themselves as friendly, but the evidence demonstrates they are not friendly and that they are actually hostile. And their goal was to influence how we actually conducted investigations, how we trained our agents, how we prosecuted cases related to Muslims in the community. Uh, even to go as far as, you know, tactical tactics and, uh, you know, uh, you actually had uh, special agents in charges, uh, charge of offices like in Miami that were so stupid and unprofessional that they would actually, uh, and I know in one case this happened, uh, they had their agents take their shoes off uh, when they went to effect an arrest at a mosque, uh, which is, you know, local police wow. uh, obviously wouldn't do that, but FBI yeah. agents did at the, at the behest of their... So these are the wow. kind of simple things, wow. but dangerous things that they were getting us to do. But most importantly, it was getting the entire way that the FBI understood the entire war and the entire battle was exactly opposite of reality. And so I started hosting these trainings and I realized by 2004, we need to have a much more significant training program for counter uh, intelligence, counterterrorism agents, analysts, um, uh, people in the financial, uh, both at DOJ and uh, inside the bureau doing uh, the financial aspects of this, uh, as well as US attorneys, assistant US attorneys, and others involved in our, our cases. And so um, I did develop such a program, a 30-day program, a four-week program, essentially, yeah. and uh, presented it with the permission of my leadership to FBI headquarters. Uh, and they seemed very yeah. excited about it. And they told me, you know, we'll bring you temporary up to headquarters and you'll run it and do all this. And that was just a smokescreen. And nothing ever happened. So uh, being a good Marine uh, initiative, being the uh, cornerstone of all great hmm. victories, I, uh, uh, with the help right. of a couple good contacts, uh, met up with a counterintelligence guy in the, in the uh, DOD who ran a uh, very significant counterintelligence training program uh, and the training academy in Maryland. And... Uh, the three of us sat down, uh, the guy who introduced us, the director of this uh, academy and, and me, and I laid out what I was trying to do and would he host this training? And uh, he said he would. And so I took it back to the office. Uh, we had to compress the training based on their schedule to two weeks. And uh, I basically yep. uh, got our office to get go to headquarters and get the money to bring in uh, – uh, agents and task force officers from around the country, uh, FBI and local police from the Washington metropolitan area. Uh, we had uh, a number of other people uh, that, that came in, and we had 50 people that included FBI agents, every three-letter mm -hmm. agency, uh, seven analysts from DOJ, uh, a, a U assistant U.S. attorney, um, and local and state police from wow. numerous agencies that went through this two week training that I created and implemented. And at the end, I still have the uh, reports. I've actually published 
some of it in articles, some of their comments. But uh, the the overwhelming belief was that everyone at the local, state, and federal level should get this training because it was exactly not what was being taught anywhere else. And it was actually the truth about what the threat is yeah. and how it operates. And um, that was the purpose. Here's their doctrine. Here, wow. the, Here's the network. Here's their yep. modus operandi. And here are investigative strategies to defeat them. And here's why knowing this changes how you interview them, how you interrogate them, how you conduct, you know, the tactical side of it, all of that. And um, yep. so that's how I got into this. And then because of this training um, and because of people we were meeting um, around uh, and inside the government, I was being asked and a colleague of mine that I met at the DOD, uh, we were being asked to quietly brief government officials. And uh, by uh, 2008, I got recruited out of the FBI into a very unique group inside the DOD um, to do strategic uh, work on this threat. And, and primarily what they had myself and a guy named Steve Coglin, who came out of the joint staff uh, at the Pentagon working for General Pace, mm -hmm. um, who was the chairman at the time, came over uh, and we were our own unit. We were a two-man unit, and we began briefing uh, wow. senior, wow. you know, three- and four-star generals and admirals, uh, former FBI, CIA, DIA directors, national security advisors, um, attorney generals, um, people like that, and senior government officials of, you know, numerous members of Congress, uh, you know, chairman of Homeland Security, Intel Committee, and the two of us would lay this out. And the thing, right. now I want to be clear, and your audience probably understands this. I know you do. I got out of the Marine Corps as a captain. That is not a senior rank. I spent my entire career in the FBI right. um, as a special agent investigating crimes, locking people up, those kinds of things. I spent less than three months on TDY at FBI headquarters as a supervisor. But apart from that, you know, I was an operator my whole life. And um, to be briefing men and women at that level who were smart, sure. Sure. Uh, I believe patriotic, solid people, hmm. uh, I never briefed and we never briefed anybody that actually understood what we were briefing them until we briefed them. And wow. that goes yep. to how the enemy was actually doing what they do, which their whole goal was to control how our leaders understood who the enemy is. And so long as they could control that, they could demonstrate a false narrative, present a false narrative to our leaders about what Islam is, what jihad is, and what their actual yep. intentions were. And they, uh, they would actually, the guys in suits would point to the Al Qaeda guys. And even though there were, they were allies, they would publicly say and say to our leaders, no, see, those guys are radicals. They're extremists. Let us advise you and we'll explain right. you what true Islam right. is. And of course, what they presented is mm. demonstrably yep. false. And here's the simple evidence of that. Well, I mean, we could spend, I mean, I've written books about it. We do uh, weeks long sure. seminars on yep. this. But the simple evidence is if you look at what... Uh, 
Islamic leaders teach 10 and 11 year old children in U.S. Islamic schools about Islam. Mm. And then you look mm. at what they tell our leaders about yep. Islam. Those two things are 180 degrees opposite. So somebody's being lied to. So are Muslims lying to their sure. children yeah. in Islamic schools when they teach Islam? Or are Muslim leaders lying to U.S. leaders about what Islam is? And here's here from a war fighting perspective, here's the point. And I'll, I'll kind of end this thought with this. U.S. war fighting doctrine says when we assess an enemy or threats, basic war fighting, you know, in the army, they call it, uh, you know, the IPB manual, you know, initial preparation of the battlefield. You begin with who the enemy says they are and why they say they're fighting. 100% of this threat, the people we've we killed or captured on the battlefields across the world, on the streets of Europe and on the streets of the United States, they say we are Muslims waging jihad to establish an Islamic state under Sharia. And the language they use to explain themselves and the sources they cite are all the same. And when you go to those sources, you see that it says exactly what they say. And when you actually read authoritatively published Islamic law, there is no gray in that. We were not made to live in isolation. Sadly, many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. A lot of guys end up drinking, a lot of guys end up losing hope. Some of them will go to the VA and they'll try to get, you know, prescription medications to help with PTSD. You know, they'll get pills for anxiety, they'll get pills because they can't sleep, now they'll get pills for depression before they know it. They're taking 12 different medications. And when it's not working out, these guys lose hope. And that's why there's 23 guys a day committing suicide. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. As a result, we've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Everything they said just kept hitting me in the heart over and over and over again. It's like all the things that I didn't know that I needed to hear. And uh, I opened my heart to God that week, dude, and like... (laughs) I've been a different person ever since. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. We provide our programs and resources, including travel, at no cost to our warriors. I remember talking to a licensed social worker who actually handed me a pamphlet to Mighty Oaks. So I went, and I'm glad I did. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. Our mission is to serve and restore our nation's warriors and families who have endured hardship through their service to America and to help them find new life purpose through hope in Christ. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. When you look at, so, you know, a lot of what you just described would be 
you know, kind of a subversive movement. It's under the surface. When you look at people like Elon Omar and Talita Rashid and people who are very publicly, certainly anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, anti-American government, are they part of this infiltration of Islam into the United States government? Um, or is that something separate? And I, I ask that because, you know, again, what you're talking about is very much under the surface. It's manipulation and movement. And that's very public. Are, are those two connected? Are they trying to meet in the middle somewhere? Or is it something completely different? No, it's all coordinated and connected. And uh, thank you for the question. I think that's a good question. And here's Here's an important thing, I think, for your audience, is that these movements, so the Islamic movement and also uh, at our organization, understand the threat. We um, actually talk about the entire threat, the Islamic threat, the communist threat, their collaborators and their financiers. Mm. Individually, the Islamic movement and the communist movement are incredibly well organized, uh, well coordinated, and they have doctrine, they have a, a strategic plan, and they have uh, are, are executing on that plan. Together, and they work together uh, seamlessly. But to your, uh, to your specific question, the, I think what would shock and does shock most people, including leaders we brief uh, even today, is how well coordinated mm. and organized these efforts are. So yes, uh, these people, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, uh, are not periphery. They're right in the midst of all this. And uh, there are multiple lines of operation. So most of what they're doing now is, uh, is out in the open. Um, and over time, so in the last 10 years, it's actually strategically a sign of where they view they are in the war. Mm. So the more public they are right. about what they're doing, that's the indicator of how close to victory they believe they are. And they're pretty much laying all their cards on the table right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So and that's, you know, that's fascinating that they believe they're that close to victory. Can you define and this is something I I served as an infantry officer in Iraq. Um, I was there during the initial invasion of Iraq. So, you know, our months of lead up to that was talking about some of these issues and what that would look like and the whys. And I still struggle even today with the why. Now, from a religious standpoint, I understand, you know, <laughs> we're infidels opposed to a religious system. But what is the goal? So if they say we're this close to the win, we can now be more public about what we're trying to do. What is the win? How would they define that? What, what's the, the ultimate or overarching goal, if you will? So that's a, another great question. And I, I just want to clarify something you said to them. This is not um, merely religious. So uh, Islam defines itself. And we, we, when we teach this, we teach out of authoritative Islamic law books, but we like to use the school books that they teach here, they use here in the United States for, again, 11, 10-year-olds um, because it's very simplistic. And Islam defines itself as a complete way of life governed by uh, Allah's divine law, Sharia. And uh, then it articulates what that is and, and what it actually says. 
So for them, it's a totalitarian system governed by a law. And religion uh, is subordinate to that. And the uh, objective on that uh, of Islam and for the, uh, a Muslim, and a Muslim is legally defined in Islam who is, as one who supports and obeys uh, Allah's divine law and submits to it. So um, that's, that's what it is. It is submission, Islam, submission to the, uh, to the divine law, according to them. Um, so they state unequivocally that the one and only objective is to establish a global Islamic state where every human being on earth is uh, under the rule of Sharia. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. I, I'll tell you, it, it, it's hard to get your mind around that, right? I mean, when I listen to that as an American, I think that's just a weird thing they're doing. How in the world can they possibly believe that's the case? But if the infiltration is, you know, as you say it is, then um, it's scary that they believe they're at that point. So yeah, and I, I just want to, I want to, I want to highlight a few things for your, uh, yeah, please. Uh, for your audience to, to, you know, make some points. The largest voting bloc in the UN is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC. That's made up of every Muslim nation on the planet, plus something they call the state of Palestine. So it's 56 nations plus the state of Palestine, 57 members. Yeah. Largest voting bloc in the UN. And in 1993, they served the Cairo Declaration on Human Rights and Islam to the United Nations as a formal document, which the last article, the 26th article, I believe, in the uh, Cairo Declaration on how Islam defines human rights, mm -hmm. it says that the only source of understanding the articles in this declaration is Islamic Sharia, wow. which means wow. when a king or head of state officially uses the, the phrase human rights, they mean the imposition of Sharia on the world. And just because our State Department and its leadership is too unprofessional and incompetent to know that, yeah. just because our leaders in Congress are too unprofessional and incompetent to know that, just because several uh, presidents since 1993 mm. are too incompetent and unprofessional to know that, doesn't make it so. Right. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Several years ago, uh, when Mrs. Clinton was the Secretary of State, and she's not the only one, this is Republican and Democrat alike, uh, she made the public statement that we need to bring Ahmadinejad to the international mm. court and try him for human rights abuses for hanging homosexuals. Well, here's how that would go. You bring him into the international court, and they would say, we're charging you for hanging homosexuals. And he says, but we have served the Cairo Declaration mm -hmm. to you as an official treaty to the United Nations, of which my country is a part. Right. And that says that we understand human rights to mean uh, all rights so long as they do not contradict Sharia. Right, correct. And yeah, well. all Sharia, 
all authoritative Sharia mandates that homosexuals be executed. And the court would be uh, obliged to say, okay, thanks for your time. Have a nice day. Yeah. And you got to understand there are real repercussions for the gross unprofessionalism. And I would argue because Americans are dead because of the unprofessionalism of our leaders, that our leaders are guilty of criminal negligence and should be in jail for it. Generals, admirals, presidents, uh, you know, chairman of uh, Intelligence Homeland Security right. Committee, right. and many others. How is how, how does immigration policy currently impact um, you know this problem? We, we're talking about all of these other things; they're all connected. How does immigration impact what's happening? Well, currently, the U.S. federal government is paying um, to uh, take uh, terrorists and people who have unlawfully entered the country, uh, pay them and transport them to strategic states uh, and areas around the country, which, uh, based on all the information we have, uh, would lead me to believe that they are intentionally doing what uh, the current uh, leaders say they're doing, which yeah. is uh, the intentional destruction of the republic. Yeah. I don't see how you look at that. And we literally have a system right now, as of today, where if you legally enter the United States, I'll just give you a couple examples. You, for instance, you have to, you're, you're mandated to have COVID vaccines. You're mandated to do certain things. You wait uh, and you come through the process lawfully. Right. If you enter the United States unlawfully, no vaccines, right. no nothing. Right. We pay you. Our government pays you and we transport you via bus, uh, via train, via airplane. Uh, and in some cases, using U.S. military aircraft uh, to transport illegals, people wow. have violated federal code, and uh, a number of whom who are uh, criminals and terrorists, jihadis, um, into the United States. Just got a report yesterday from uh, some sources at the U.S. southern border in um, Texas that um, the, uh, there is a massive uh, influx this week, and they don't know what's going on. And they said the numbers of people they're catching who are criminals, actual criminals, uh, the percentage of the people coming across has increased greatly. But we're, we're bringing it. The, the people crossing the border and getting in here is massive right now. Yeah. Uh, man, John, there's so many... So many places we could go, so many things I'd like to talk about. Uh, let me ask you two questions. Uh, number one is this, what can people do? So that would be one question. And the second question is, you've written a number of books. If you were to tell someone to, hey, here's the book you need to start with that really will inform you on this, uh, which one would that be? Where would you tell them to start? So what can we do as people with this information? And then second, where would you point people to pick up this book and this will give you a good primer on what's happening? Okay, so thank you for those questions. And I, I think they're related. Um, so first, uh, the what can you do also answers the, you know, the, the resource question. Uh, I encourage people, go to understandingthethreat.com and um, utilize our resources. Uh, sign up for the newsletter and all that. Um, if there's one book I would encourage you to get, and again, you can get it on our website or Amazon.com. 
it is raising a jihadi generation. Mm. And I wrote it and it's a quick read. And the responses from people have been uh, tremendous. And I'll I'll just say this one example. There was a gentleman who uh, a number of years ago came to me, uh, met me for lunch. Um, I knew him pretty well. And he had bought about 15 books and he had me sign each one to different judges, sheriffs, uh, attorneys, other people, prosecutors. And he gave them personally because he knew these people. And uh, one of the people who responded, and several did, a sheriff called me and he said, is this John Guandolo? <laughs> I said, yes, sir, it is. He said, well, this is Sheriff so-and-so, and uh, I got a bone to pick with you. And I <laughs> said, okay, sir, what did I do? And he said, well, I got your book. I said, oh, great. He said, well, not really. He said, uh, I made the poor decision of, of reading it before I went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I stayed up all, uh, he said, it only took, you know, it only takes less than three hours to yeah. read really. And he said, uh, so I stayed up late reading it and then I couldn't sleep. Uh, and he said, so now my question to you is what can I do for my community? Yeah, and started yeah that's with, good. Uh, what is now a, a, you know, over 10 year relationship here's, um, so that's, that's the resource yeah. because it lays out, uh, the Muslim brotherhood network in the United States. Now, what can citizens do? And that's, we, we're the answer. What I have, I pray I've built well, is what we do is we train people. Uh, we train citizens. We, you bring us to your community. And in our three-day into action training program, uh, we literally teach you how to, uh, who the threats are in the United States, how to find them in your local community, mm-hmm. how to flush them out, render them ineffective, or at least much less effective while reestablishing a Republican form of government at the county level. Those are the two things. Flush the bad guys out, yep. reestablish a Republican form of government. The word we use when you do that is fortifying your county. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. And then you f- fortify adjacent counties and you start actually building large parts of your state that are fortified against further intrusion, and you start taking back your state that way. And when you do that in multiple, especially key states, um, you're actually, that is the national strategy. And so, and when I say what we're doing, we are the ones, you know, training people to end action. But in, in the bigger strategy, we bring to bear numerous allies that um, uh, have great experience in their area of expertise, and we're just the coordinating arm for that. Yeah, that's awesome. Raising a Jihadi Generation, again, that can be found at understandingthethreat.com or at Amazon, and then all of your resources, including the training, also at understandingthethreat.com. John, thank you for your service to to our country, first of all, uh, for your service as a United States Marine, and for what you continue to do. This is so important. I feel like we're at a weird time where there are a lot of balls up in the air and you can't focus on all of them. So people are kind of running. Right now we're worried about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, We talk about China. (laughs) We talk about all these things. But right here we have some real issues we need to focus on. Thank you for keeping us focused there. And, um, man, look forward to talking again. It's fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. I appreciate the uh, conversation. Yes, sir.
Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of their lives. He created the Giza Dream bed sheets. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for you and me. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. Mike's latest incredible deal is the sale of the year. Sale of the year. That means it's not going to happen again. This is the sale of the year. What is it? For a limited time, you will receive 60% off the Giza Dream Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You will receive a set for as low as $39.99. For a limited time, with any purchase, you will receive Mike's soft cover book free when you use promo code SITREP. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code SITREP. Along with this offer, you will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. For those of you that would rather use the phone, and some of you are out there, you know who you are, call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or MyPillow.com and use the promo code SITREP. Very, very helpful conversation, and I hope that you will go to understandingthethreat.com, check out the resources that are found there. This is one of those issues you can't just listen to, go, that was interesting, and then let it pass. You need to understand this, understand what you can do, and uh, really lean into getting a hold of everything that was talked about. There's so much here. We'll have John back on and talk about that. But check out his website, check out his book, and learn more about what you can do. And we do appreciate you, of course, joining us on this episode, listening to this conversation. And I hope that you will subscribe if you are not yet. Go to your favorite podcast platform. If you're listening to this, the podcast platform you're listening from, make sure that you are subscribed. And every time a new episode comes out three times a week, You'll receive that and you can get it, listen to it, and share it with other people that need to receive information like this. And I'd love to join you there. Thank you for listening. If you're watching over on Salem Now, thank you for doing that. We will talk to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.